you haven't been to junior church or if you want to be excused to junior church, you may go do so. It's Bible Explorers and uh, invite you to consider that. Those that remain and our guests out there in Palmer Hall, it seems like there's more of you out there than normal. Uh, greetings to you from afar, yes. Um, we all have a choice whether to get here you know, early, early, early and get your seat or if you'd like to come in a little bit late and uh, find your way to Palmer Hall. It's, uh, there's choices, there's options. Everywhere today there is choice, right? I mean, choices abound. Perhaps you don't know how pervasive choices actually are. Uh, they are everywhere. They occupy almost all of your life. And I love G.K. Chesterton's uh, his quote in this famous book called Orthodoxy. This is what he says. Every act is an act of self-sacrifice. When you choose anything, you reject everything else. When you choose anything, you reject everything else. So as trained consumers, we are constantly asking ourselves, is it worth it? Right? If somebody came to you and said, uh, your car is in need of repair and it's going to cost you about $15,000, the first question you're going to ask is, is it worth it? The mileage, the year, the finances that you have, and if your car's like mine, you're going to say, no, it ain't worth $15,000 of repair. I mean, $15,000 looks huge. But, Suppose, on the other hand, a real estate agent come to you and it says, hey, this piece of property right here, it's worth $400,000. And if you just put $15,000 worth of money in it to fix it, it would be worth over $500,000. Well, now all of a sudden, right, $15,000 looks small. Your sense of proportion is completely different. 15K is, is not 15K. $15,000 and what it means to you and how easy it is to give it up depends completely on the worth of the object. Is it worth it? We don't just do that with financial choices. Have you ever done this with your time? Who in here has, especially this time of year, right, been in a line that is moving way too slow? The store is crowded, there are not enough checkout people, and you are sitting there in line as minutes go by, and you're beginning to say, with what I got in my hand and what I need, and how long I have to be in this line, you're saying, is it worth it? If you're like me, you're thinking, can I jump into that line faster? Can I do self-checkout? You're wondering, can I just get that at a different time? You might be tempted to put that item down and just walk out of the store because it's your time and it's costing you something. Is it worth it? But then, right when you're about ready to turn and pivot, that person in front of you slightly turns to reveal who they are. It's her. It's him. Maybe it's somebody famous, maybe it's that person that you would like to get to know better from school, university, or work, whatever it might be, but you say to them, oh, I love your work, it's so good that we got to meet you here, and they say, thank you, thank you, you know, how did you come to know about my work, how do you know who I am, you know, oh yes, you know, and you begin to exchange pleasantries, and the next thing you know, you're talking, and you're off to the races, and time just flies by. Where minutes ago, 10 minutes felt like it was costing you an eternity. Now you're saying what? 
Your sense of proportion because of who it is. Now you're saying 10 minutes. I hope that we stick here for an hour. Oh, you want to go by me? Go ahead. You, you first. I hope they ask me out to lunch. You can keep talking. Give me 15 minutes. Give me an hour. Give me all day. Right? And all of a sudden, that sense of proportion changes. What changed in that sense of proportion? Well, first of all, you recognize something or someone of value. And your heart began to be filled with awe. But it wasn't just that you admired it. Your mind began to see the value of it. Right? This is what happens. You begin to think through all the implications of your life if you had that thing. (gasps) If I sold that for $500,000 and made $85,000 worth of profit, my life would be so much different and what I could do with that money. So how that worth begins to impact you that it then begins to change your behavior. You recognize, admire, work out the implications, and then it follows into you invest. You invest in the object of that person that is really worth your time. You invest in that piece of property. Your mind, your heart, your actions, they're all changed because it's worth it. And that, my friends, is worth-ship. Worth-ship. Do you see it? It is not just religious people who worship. Everybody worships, and we worship all the time. Life is a battle of who or what are we going to worship. And our text this morning has before us this vignette of two people kind of comparing and contrasting them, of recognizing who Jesus is, what He has done for them, and how they respond to what He has done and who He is. We're going to see two characters contrasted as they each ask, is Jesus worth it? You know, one's going to be commended, one will be condemned. One asks, what can I give him? The other asks, what can I get from him? One person performs an act of worship, while the other one protests. We're going to trace this story, and I want you to be warned, faith family, everybody worships, and here's the point. Worship is costly. Worship is costly. You better recognize and respond appropriately to who Jesus is and what he has done. Well, first, John wants us to remember the context. So he books in this passage with Lazarus. Look with me at verse 1. In verse 1, we read, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Then skip down to verse 9. When the large crowds of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only of account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. John is signaling for us by bookending this passage with Lazarus that we need to keep Lazarus in our mind because Lazarus is the one who is back from the grave. He has been raised from the dead, and he is a sign. He is a visual aid. Lazarus is a walking advertisement that Jesus Christ has the power to defeat death, right? He's a walking advertisement showing you who Jesus is and what he has come to do 
And it is undeniable evidence of who Jesus is and the kind of power that he has to defeat death because Christ tells us in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. You want some proof? Look at this guy who is four days dead, brought back to life. Well, this causes Mary and Martha to celebrate, point two, celebrate. They throw a party for their dead brother is now alive. I mean, who wouldn't throw a party for that? Verse 2, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Here is their brother, eating, drinking, telling stories. And don't you wish John would have included some of those stories? I mean, he is back from the dead. He is up there in heaven. He is enjoying his time, and the intercom comes out, Lazarus. (laughs) What'd I do? You know, and he's happy with where he is. And the next thing you know, boom, right back here on earth, walking out wrapped in linens. It's like, I can imagine the stories that Lazarus could tell. They're laughing all in presence together around a table because of who Jesus is and what he has done. So Mary recognizes who Jesus is. She responds in worship, and she begins to think, what can I give that would reflect the worth of who He is and what He has done for me? What can I give? I have my brother back. Look at what she finds. Verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. John notes the monetary value of this uh, ointment in verse 5. He tells us that it was 300 denarii. If you're not used to calculating in those terms, that is a year's wages, 300 days worth of work. And so the price in our modern day for minimum wage would be about $20,000 on a bottle of ointment, perfume, cologne. You think $60 is expensive on smelling good. Can you imagine a whole year's wages? This is not in the notes, but people have to wrestle with, how did she get this? Some people think that it could just be what she would have as a dowry. Think about that. Not giving that to a husband, not having a dowry in that day and age, and pouring that at Jesus' feet. Instantly dispersed. Instantly depleted all of it. Instantly disposed. Gone in a moment in a lavish display of devotion. Is it worth it? I mean, think about what the family could have bought. The family. The family could have, what could they have done? Where could they have traveled? Think about what they could have invested in and get a return on that. Is he worth it? Well, Mary weighed, Mary measured, and she decided there is no way to measure and to weigh the worth of Christ. 
Friends, I think if there would have been anything more valuable in that house, Mary would have found that and offered that. Because Jesus is worth her everything. Her brother's back. She recognizes who he is and what he has done for her. It's an amazing act of worship. And did you know that she shows this act of worship at his feet? She stooped to perform an act that was reserved for servants. Most of us don't enjoy washing other people's feet. But can you imagine wearing your Chacos, David Testament hiking up Mount Washington, Tuckerman's Ravine, after a muddy day, coming back and, yeah, (laughs) that's what it's like. And she embraces this act of humble service, and she does not bring a towel. She uses her hair. She lets down her hair, which women would rarely have done in that day and age in that culture. But Mary is not concerned about taking the posture of a servant. Mary is not concerned about social norms, about what a woman should or should not do with her hair in public. Mary is not concerned about the cost. She only knows one thing. I love Jesus, and he's worth it. Nothing is worth more to her than him. Faith family, if it is true that there can be something of infinite value in real estate that could change your life, that is worth you scrounging up 15 grand, I mean, looking at every corner, how to earn a couple extra days' wages, what to take out of retirement, who to borrow from, just so you could get 15 grand so you could invest in it. I think the question is, how much more valuable is God himself? How much more awe? How how much more joy? How much more ought to be the implications in your life that you have someone of this worth who can defeat death in your life? Kind of puts it in perspective. I'm glad to know this person. No, do you know this person who has the power to defeat death? So, faith family, how far removed are you from the example of Mary? Do you feel the same way about Jesus today? It starts with just being in awe of him, who he is and what he has done for you, and that you treasure that. And when was the last time you kind of thought about all the implications in your life of how he is worth it because of what you have in him? You're moved by his beauty and his grace, and it transforms you because you see what he's done for you. Is your life characterized by this extravagant devotion? Is he worth it? And if it does, it fills the whole room with this aroma because you're offering this sacrifice to him, pouring out your life, your time, your talents, your treasure. It's a beautiful moment of ascribing worth to the one who is fully deserving. But it doesn't last long. Judas smells this extravagant devotion 
And he protests. He takes issue with Mary's worship. And he wants to stop her on some economic grounds. Look at verses 4 through 5. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who's about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He protests this extravagant act. And he proposes that this oil should have been sold to help the poor. The money could be better spent. And to a watching world, the lives of Christians get asked the same question. What a waste of money. What a waste of time every week on a Sunday morning. What a waste of resources. What a waste of a life. You want to be a missionary? You want to be a pastor? You want to leverage your business, not make that much so you can get the name of Christ out there? You want to disciple your kids full time? Why would you pour it all out before the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, from their perspective, the world's perspective, their proportion is off. Extravagant worship of Jesus is wasteful. No need to expend your resources on Jesus. Just give him a little bit. But if you're here thinking that, my non-Christian friend, I just want to encourage you, remind you again that all of us worship. All of us are pouring out our resources on something or someone. Therefore, all worship is costly. Consider the grave error that a child makes in, when his sense of proportion is off. Have you ever known a child, perhaps you've had one, perhaps you've just seen children that do this, but they have a special blankie or a special stuffed animal that is worth so much to them. They just can't go anywhere without it. We say they can't be separated from it. They need it in order to go to bed at night. They take it with them to university. They get married and they sew it into the quilt, okay? Or it is their pillowcase. I mean, they need it. You guys with me? We may or may not have a couple of those in our house, all right? I mean, everyone's looking around at who has this special thing, okay? Now, we all know that kids have that. Now, imagine an adult having time with that child at Thanksgiving, and it's about nap time. We're all about ready to hit that turkey coma, okay? And that adult comes over and says, you know, it's the uncle that wants to just kind of poke and pester. That, that's me, by the way, okay? And, and so that uncle comes over and he says, hey, would you trade me that blanket for a brownstone row house overlooking the Charles on Beacon Street in Boston? Now, at best, if the parent is in the room, the child will look at the parent, at best, and waffle for a second, like, Mom and Dad, I don't know what Brownstone is, I don't know what Beacon Street is, I don't know what the Charles is, but my uncle is offering me things, and he wants my blankie, and he'll look to his parent and think, is it worth it, Mom and Dad? But we know that no matter what mom and dad say, what's that child going to do? No way. This is my blankie. And of course, the uncle would laugh 
and he would think, ah, oh, you're a child. You have no sense of proportion. All you know is this cuddly, wonderful feeling that you get from being wrapped up in this blanket in bed at night. And that is more real to him than this theoretical idea of a brownstone row house overlooking the Charles that's probably worth, what, 1.5 million dollars. The child has no sense of proportion, and so he worships, and it's costly. The same with Judas. Judas has no sense of proportion, and it's costly. He doesn't have a large heart for the poor. He's like the Grinch. He has a very small heart, and it only beats for himself. And John, the narrator, has to insert himself into this story to let you know what's really happening, even though in real time they didn't know yet. So John, the narrator, exposes his pretense, all this moral posturing. Look at verse 6. John mentions, you know, Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of that money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Ah, uh, yeah, not now we see what's really going on. This virtue signaler is not really concerned about the poor, but about himself. And where Mary goes all in for Jesus, Judas is really going all out for himself. And so for three more years, or for a total of three years, I don't want to get the chronology wrong here, of being with Jesus, living in his presence, seeing his signs, hearing every bit of his teaching and his words, his heart never melted in worship, in awe and joy. Being that close to Jesus, he never thought, what can I give him? Instead, he just thought, what can I get from him? How can I use him? Because his heart is so tightly fixed on himself, it's curved inward, that he just wants to use Jesus, and eventually he's willing to betray Jesus for what? 30 pieces of silver, the cost of a slave. How much is Jesus worth to Judas? The cost of a slave. Money was a big thing in his life, so he lets Jesus go. But did he do the right thing? Is he worth it. Judas was a child, isn't he? No sense of proportion. And sin made him look stupid. You can quote me on this. Sin makes us look stupid. When walking with Jesus for three years, seeing who he is and what he has done, and choosing money over Jesus is stupid. And we make those choices every day when our hearts are prone to turn away from the worth of Christ and to treasure something else above him. Pleasure, ease, vacations, hobbies. Oh man, we're worth investing in that. My faith family, where are you assigning more worth and value to a passing pleasure that's going to look pathetic 
in light, in momentary, in light of eternity, in what heaven could give you in Christ. You are gazing at something, aren't you? I mean, Black Friday's coming up. You're gazing at something. You're considering the implications if you had it. Ah, if I just had that ski erg, I'd be so much more fit for the slopes. If I just had those skis, I would be even faster. If I just had that driver's license, if I just had those clothes, if I just had those friends, if I just had that savings account, if I just had that health, You are considering the implications of what you want. And the question is, will they last? Will they protect you? Is it worth it? Let's look at the climax here. The question is before us, which are we? Are we Mary or are we Judas? Whether you are Mary or whether you are Judas, it's determined by what you make of Jesus. Is he worth the expense? Well, listen to Jesus' own words as he says that he is worth it in verses 7 through 8. Here's the climax, verses 7 through 8. Jesus said to them, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Here's the point. Jesus is saying in that passage that his death is worth the expense. His death is worth the expense. This is going to be a death that is worth everything. This is going to be a death so significant that it is worth spending a whole year's wages on. This is going to be a death that actually defeats death and brings life. This is going to be a death that's going to bring people from all nations to him, together into one people, to be reconciled to God. And all of that is going to be accomplished by Jesus' sin-bearing death. Mary is advertising us with kind of Super Bowl-like money. You know Super Bowl ads? They are expensive for like 30 seconds. And Mary is doing Super Bowl advertising on Jesus. Extravagant, excessive, extreme money that Jesus has the power to defeat death because he's going to his own sin-bearing death. That's what Jesus is saying here. Mary doesn't get it all, but here's, I'm going to try to say it to you as simple as I can. In order for Lazarus to come back from the grave, Jesus must go to his. We can never separate the fact that Lazarus is raised from the dead from Jesus actively choosing to go to his as the payment for sin. And so Mary is advertising better than she even realizes that he is worth it, not just because he brought Lazarus back, but because he's going to achieve a payment for sin for all who will believe. The only way that Lazarus can be brought back from the dead and be given life, and anyone else who believes in Jesus cannot face death but live for eternity, is if Jesus goes to his and pays for our sin. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to go into that strong man's house, death. I'm going to bind him up so that you can come out free, liberated, and defeat death. My death will achieve your life. And I'll do that by becoming the Passover lamb. Faith family, this is so good. We know the context here is Passover. 
And two miles away in Jerusalem, there are millions of people gathering, preparing for worship. Millions of people are going to Jerusalem to remember that God delivered them out of bondage from Egypt. Millions of denarii are being spent in preparation for this worship on Passover lambs, where a priest will prepare a lamb to be sacrificed to cover the sins of the people. And John takes his camera from the millions of people gathered in Jerusalem, and he swings that camera and he dials in onto one singular family unit who is worshiping an individual who delivered her brother from the bondage of death. But what is really happening is that God is preparing his own Passover lamb. Did you know that when the word anointing is used, it is often used in reference to an office? Only kings get anointed. And Mary, in offering this anointment, is saying, this is the king. Behold your king. And we know if we just fast forward to next week, the triumphal entry, everyone's saying, Hosanna, this is the king of the Jews. But this king is not going to conquer from a battlefield. This king is going to conquer from his own burial plot. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, weigh, consider, calculate. In proportion to your sin and your impending death, calculate the worth of someone that could be in your life that has the power to defeat death and give you life. Is he worth it? My friends, this is a death that overturns all other minor aspirations. Our collecting of clothes, our collecting of cars, our collecting of houses and trophies and trinkets, this death is value shifting. Is it worth it? Well, consider the alternative. Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? This little grain of wheat is going into the ground to die. But like a seed, once it's dead, it's going to rise and bear forth fruit. And as extravagant as Mary's act is, his would be the truly extravagant act that God himself would become the Passover lamb and die in your place. So is a year's wages worth it? In compared to that extravagant gift, the extravagant devotion that Jesus has for you. What gift could be too extravagant for him? This passage is not about giving him your money. That is too small. This whole passage is about giving him your life because he gave his life for you. Is he worth it? We're going to have three songs in closing because I just feel like after you consider the magnitude of what he has done for you, your soul just wants to treasure him in awe. And as we sing, I pray that it would be transformed, that your heart would melt, and that you'd want to lay down your life again and say, Lord, here I am. Use me. But we not be like Judas, 
with our virtue posturing of coming to church and saying, I'm a righteous person. I pray you're not coming to church thinking what you could get from him and how to use him. I pray that you'd be like Mary, that Jesus would be your treasure, not the means to another treasure, that you would treasure Christ above all things. And that would be shown in your priorities, your life, and all that you do. So there would be an aroma leading others to life. And some telling them of their impending death because they're just repelled like Judas. They don't think he's worth it. Would you stand with us as we sing these closing songs?